Strange things are growing in our movies, TV shows, and books. There are so many weird and wonderful plants in the stories you know and love, but are they based in science or fiction? In each episode, we dive into the botany hidden in our favorite stories. We find out what's real and what's fantasy with help from the experts here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And this is Botanical Mystery Tour. Huge, rotten, rare. Three short words to describe one very large plant. Amorphophallus titanum, better known as the corpse flower, is definitely big. Sure, corpse flowers smell god-awful, but they're probably one of the most popular attractions at the garden when they bloom. They're a spectacle in the plant kingdom, and humans are fascinated by them, so much so that they've been parodied and enshrined in pop culture. Think of the Simpsons and the Sumatran century flower. And the short bloom of the corpse flower sometimes reminds people of Dennis the Menace and the 40-year orchid. They've even gotten a mention in Gilmore Girls. Today we're talking with Patty Vitt about why humans are so obsessed with these corpse flowers and what they're all about. Patty is a conservation scientist and she studies reproductive ecology of rare plants. Hi, Patty. Hi. So tell us, why are these Amorphophallus titanums called the corpse flowers? Well, it's called that for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you are lucky enough to be able to stand where you can see down inside one of them, you'll notice that the frilly outer leafy layer that's called the spathe, um, that kind of looks like the skirt around the inflorescence, is deep purple red on the inside. Um, And it looks rather like rotting meat. Um, it kind of has the same color as a nice slab of beef might when it's sitting rare on your plate. Um, the other reason why they call it the corpse flower is because it really does smell like a rotting corpse. Um, it could be the rotting corpse of a big pile of dead fish or maybe a dead deer. Uh, anyway, the smell is a very distinctive and it does attract the same kinds of insect visitors that rotting corpses do. Like? Like blowflies. Um, blowflies? Yeah, blowflies, maggot flies, you know, house flies, whatever kind of fly and or carrion beetle that might feed on uh, dead animals will also be attracted to the smell um, and the flower or the inflorescence of the titanarum. Um, and in fact, the titanarum even heats up quite a bit, and so it kind of mimics even the body temperature of a just freshly dead animal. This plant, it's a sight to behold, right? I mean, can you, can you give us a visual? It's enormous. It's enormous, right. So um, I'm, I'm 5'1", and... You know, I have to, if if I'm looking inside of it or I'm working to pollinate it or something, I have to climb up on a great big huge ladder to even look down inside of it. And it, so it, it's just, it's it's hard to actually convey the size of it. Even when you walk a, around it, when it's on display here at the Botanic Garden, I mean, you get a sense of it when you walk around it, but when you're standing on the ladder and you're looking down inside of it or you're standing next to it to um, do pollination of it, it, it's really obvious just how big it really is. Yeah. Um, and when it's in the greenhouse, 
you can't escape the smell. I mean, it's it's just imp- it's suffocating. No, you 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 can't. Um, and and in in fact, the smell will actually travel out into the hallway and into the courtyard when it's really you know at peak at peak bloom time for this thing. So yeah, the the smell is really cloying, but it also um, kind of pulses. So it kind of comes and goes. Um, and, you know, you can be standing there and you think it's fine and you think, oh, I've just gotten acclimated to the smell. And then all of a sudden it's like it just pumps out this blast of fresh scent. So we've had the That's privilege of the garden to experience this disgusting smell, but really interesting plant. Um, and every time that it happens, you hear the same thing from visitors who come maybe later in the bloom. You say, oh, it doesn't smell that bad. So that short period of intense smell, beautiful bloom, is something that people don't quite understand. So is what is is there a reason for that? Do we understand why it's such a short bloom time, why the smell is so strong just for a few hours? Yeah, so it's two different things, actually. And we've learned a lot about the scent production. So first, let's talk about the bloom time. Okay. Um, there are a lot of plants that produce flowers for just a short period of time. Um, you know, so if you think of things like daylilies, I mean, they're called daylilies because the individual flowers only last a day. Evening primrose, the same thing. It flowers in the evening, and each individual flower is done blooming, you know, by mid-morning the next day. So individual flowers frequently only last for 24 hours or less. What's different about this plant is that, you know, that, that great big enormous bloom that we see is not a flower right? It's an enormous inflorescence. And when you take that skirt, that spathe off of the plant, what you see inside there are hundreds, if not thousands, of tiny little flowers all packed into a very small space. Um, And so, and what's different is that the whole inflorescence then only lasts a day, Um, really about eh, 36 hours. So it and it has two distinct phases in its bloom. It has a female fl- phase when it first opens up and the spathe kind of relaxes and it, you know, looks open. Um, it is producing um, the the stigmas or, or the receptive surface for the pollen are receptive and they're kind of shiny. And that's when it's female, if you will. Um, you can have pollen put on those stigmas and they'll start to grow and hopefully fertilize and create a seed. Um, the, and then the spathe actually closes back up a little, about 12 hours, maybe 14 hours after that, and then opens back up just a little bit. Um, and then it, it is the, that's the male phase when the pollen is being shed. And that occurs over about maybe 8 to 12 hours also. Um, so the whole thing can last about 36, sometimes 48 hours. The smell is really different. And one of the things that we've learned, um, because we have now had five or six of these bloom, um, is that if we pollinate, they essentially, you know, they just give themselves a little pat on the back and they say, job done. We're good. Yeah, yeah we did it, right? Um We've, we, I, I did my job. I don't need. I don't need to continue to pump out this odor and this heat um, because that's energy, right? That's that plant costs the plant a lot of energy to keep doing that. 
if the job is done, why spend that that reserve um, for pollination when you can spend it on making those babies instead? Um, and so um, what we've learned is that about an hour after we pollinate, the scent drops completely. Hmm. Um, if we don't pollinate, the scent production will continue. And that's when we've noticed that we really see over the course of that, you know, maybe 14 hours in the female phase where it pulses on and off. And then it slows down a lot when the spathe closes back up again. And then it pumps back up again when the male phase goes on. So if people are walking through and they're not getting, you know, the full Monty, as it will, um, <laughs> it's probably because either they came after we pollinated it or they've come in the middle of, you know, one of the lull periods and they haven't actually experienced yeah. the full blast yeah. scent. And the disappointment in not, not getting the full smell is always surprising. Like, did you did you want to get the full smell? <laughs> I really, I apologize. I, I, I know, think I, I know. draw, though. I know. I, th right? I think yeah. it's really funny because then I think to myself, well, if that's what you really wanted, you know, I can find a garbage truck <laughs> on a 90-degree day and you can drive behind it and basically have the same experience. Come hang out behind my apartment. You'll get the same. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so we know what the smell does to us, right, and to bugs. But what, does it do anything? Because in the episode of The Simpsons where the Sumatran sundry flower, it kills all the other plants around it, right? Does the smell of the corpse flower affect any other plants? That's a really good question. Um, truthfully, to the visible eye, the answer is no. Um, it 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 doesn't really. Um, it, it it's not like it's a you know it's a death gas that seeps out of this plant and everybody <laughs> right. all the plants in the forest are going oh, no oh, I'm gonna fall over. Um, that's that's not really what happens. Um, it's really you know signaling um, in the animal and plant world really is very specific. You know the other plants probably aren't even. It's not even registering that this is happening. So good. It's not a, it's not a killer plant. <laughs> no, it's not a killer plant. It just it masquerades as a killer plant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so in the Dennis the Menace episode, or movie, excuse me, that people sometimes compare the corpse flower's short bloom to, um, this plant has been taken care of for about 40 years. And then it blooms less than a minute, and everybody misses it. And Dennis, and you know, Dennis, the menace, it comes in, does what Dennis yeah. does, ruins <laughs> um, it. So obviously, that's not how a corpse flower works. But the concept is is a little bit similar in terms of the short bloom time. Um, so why why is it that um, is there a reason why it blooms so such a short window, like every few years? Why is it that it doesn't bloom every year or every couple months? Or do we do we understand that? It hasn't necessarily been directly studied in this species, but we have some clues about those answers from lots of other plant species, including some of the species that um, we know about from our own backyard. So, for example, Jack in the Pulpit, which is a really common woodland plant, is kind of a miniature um, corpse flower. Um, it puts out a little scent. You don't really notice it because it's not it's not in our scent um, capability to perceive. Um, it gives out a little heat, uh, and um, it's also pollinated by 
well, by fungus gnats. Um, and we know that really large plants in this um, species can flower pretty frequently every year, every other year. Um, but if they have a really huge reproductive episode, by that I mean they have lots and lots of offspring. They've done their job. They've really made a lot of fruits and a lot of seeds. That costs them energy. And they have this underground storage organ that's called a corm. And in Jack in the Pulpit, you know, it's only a couple of inches across. In uh, Titanarum or in Amorphophallus titanum, it's enormous, and it weighs, it can weigh up to 200 pounds, maybe even more than that in some of the specimens, right? And when you weigh them before and after they flower, and especially after they produce fruit, they're much smaller. And so it just, their whole reserve of that energy that's stored in that underground organ is just depleted. And it takes them a while to build that back up again to the point where they can begin the whole cycle to bloom again. So we have um, a collection of uh, corpse flowers at yes. the garden. Yes. Um, would, can you tell us about what what we're doing to protect this? They're endangered, correct? Yeah, they're they're definitely a species of concern globally. Um, so the plants that are held at botanic gardens are from essentially a single seed source or maybe two seed sources, um, and so they're all highly related. I mean, you know, they're kind of brothers and sisters. So what we're trying to do is to understand um, what's called the provenance of those plants, where they actually originated from, um, where they were collected, if they were shared amongst botanic gardens or other institutions, so that we can understand how related they are. We also think that some of their coloring of the flowers are, well, of the bloom itself, of the, the appendix, which is that great big thing that sticks up above the um, spathe that's part of the inflorescence inside called the spadix. Um, that has different coloration in different individuals. Um, and all of ours are a light green, a really beautiful light green, but there are other institutions that have some that are a dark mauve and one that's almost kind of lavender. And we think that that means that they are um, from different lineages. Um, and so what we're trying to do is to preferentially share the pollen that we collect with those institutions that have plants from different lineages and then also obtain pollen from um, botanic gardens that have plants from different lineages so that if we do pollinate any of ours, that it's pollinated with um, something that is not closely related or a plant that's not closely related. Um, because what we're trying to do is not just have um, lots of, you know, of these plants in botanic garden collections, but to make sure that it is um, a managed population that's being held so that we have a good conservation collection that's genetically diverse. So how successful have we been so far? I know we've had like a handful of blooms and different efforts in pollination. What's been the result so far? So, so far we've had one really successful um, outcross event. Um, and some of those seeds have been shared with other institutions. 
Some of them have also been put into long-term storage at the USDA seed bank in Fort Collins um, so that we have an even further kind of conservation um, reserve, if you will, of this species. Um, other of our, others of our crosses have not been quite as successful. I mean, it, it, it's a difficult plant horticulturally, so um, sometimes you're going to be successful and sometimes you're not. Um, but the other thing is, is that it takes a really long time. It takes a long time. It takes about, you know, nine months or so um, for a seed to be successfully produced. Um, and then it can take 10 years from seed to the next flowering plant. And so this is a really long-term commitment that the Botanic Garden is making to be a part of this global effort to conserve this plant ex situ or off-site. How long have you been studying corpse flowers, Patty? You know, I only started working on them when they came into bloom here. But I worked on Jack in the Pulpit for my dissertation, um, which I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was. <laughs> no one needs to know. <laughs> no one needs to know, exactly. Um, but so I, I've been interested in the concepts um, that are they're identical right, um, between Jack in the Pulpit and the corpse flower from a reproductive ecology perspective. You know, the corm size in Jack in the Pulpit is completely related to um, how or if it blooms. Um, and it's the same thing with the corpse flower. So one of the things that we're doing now is to keep more careful track of the growth of the individuals. Um, and so we're looking at how big the leaf is and how big the corm is and how much it weighs. And over time, when we get enough data, we'll be able to, you know, sort of get a statistical model that will tell us what's the probability of flowering uh, that a, a corm has if it's, you know, 180 pounds versus 150 pounds. So if it's 150 pounds, I mean, maybe it only has a 20% chance of flowering. But if it's 180 pounds, it has a 90% chance of flowering. And so um, not only from a, you know, a scientific perspective, but also from a, um, a, a horticultural perspective, that will give us a lot better ability to predict um, sort of the bloom time of these plants. Right, because historically they've been very unpredictable. Yeah, they're completely unpredictable. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, we don't really even know. So even even when it's growing, um, the the leaves are quite large, um, and so you can imagine if something makes an inflorescence that's that big, that the leaves are just as big. In fact, if you looked at one of the leaves of these plants, you would think it was a small tree. Right, it can be fifteen or nineteen feet tall. And, you know, I don't know, 15 feet wide, it's huge, right? It looks like a tree. Um, and so, um, no, I forgot where I was going. Because okay. <laughs> well, I like what, the leaves so much. But yeah. the leaves but are interesting. They're unpredictable. Yeah. I know where I was going. So the when it first comes up um, out of dormancy, so it, it has a leaf. It goes into dormancy about every nine months or six months or so. Um, and then it sits in dormancy for six months or so. So it's got this, this on again, off again, above ground appearance. When it first starts to grow out of the corm and come above the soil, it takes 
several weeks to a couple of months before we even know if that little shoot that's growing out of the ground is going to be a leaf or is going to be an inflorescence. So it keeps us guessing for a really long time. It's hard to tell the difference until it gets much further along than you would, you know, you might predict. And that's maybe part of the excitement, right? When it does actually bloom, it's like hand, all hands on deck at the at the garden. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a uh, yeah. We get maybe ten days worth of advance notice. Oh yeah, we've got one that's kind of come and bloom, and it's like, oh oh, am I even going to be here? Oh, where am I? Oh oh, I'll be there. Um, yeah, and it's. I mean, that's part of its charm, right? It's the it's the it's the mystery of of its blooming, of what it's doing when it's blooming, um, if it's going to bloom, um, if it's really going to successfully finish that bloom. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, as a scientist, if we knew all of the answers, you know, it, if it was that predictable, you know, kind of be eh, a little passe. But that is part of its, that's part of why it's exciting is because it is so unpredictable. We definitely have a lot of fans. Of the corpse flowers so much so that we've named them and we have people come and ask us, how is Spike doing? How is Alice doing? Um, but you had said earlier, male and female, it's an it. It doesn't have a gender. We kind of give these plants character because they're so mysterious, maybe. I mean, what, what is there a reason that you think that people are just so interested in them in terms of pop culture, not just science, but like as a personality? Well, you know, the truth is, I think it's because this plant cannot be ignored. I mean, especially when it's in flower. You just can't ignore it. It smells. It's ginormous. <laughs> it just screams for attention. And most plants, they're much more demure, right? Um, if they smell pretty, they might capture your attention. If they have a gorgeous display, like some of the cherries and crab apples that are so beautiful right now, um, that might get your attention. <clears throat> but otherwise, you know, a cherry tree or a crab apple tree when it's just got leaves on it, or in the wintertime when it doesn't have anything on it, I mean, we kind of don't even notice them. Um, but this plant, because it just it screams for attention, I think it, we, we do kind of give it a little bit more character. We amorphify. Amorphophallus. <laughs> Not amorphophallus. We anthropomorphize it. Yeah, those two words are kind of similar. Um, we anthropomorphize it. Um, and even I do it, you know? I mean, I, yeah. Spike. I've, I always call Spike a he. I made that mistake too, yeah. And even though, I, you know, I'm perfectly yeah, aware. Well, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's maybe not PC, but it's, I do it because, you know, Spike is definitely reminds me of a, of a male. And, um, even though I know, even when it's in, even when it is, I know those little stigmas are out there. They're ready to get pollen on them, and it's in a female phase. I still call it heat. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it really is because it captures our attention, and it's it's kind of it's more than life size, right? It's one of the few plants yeah. that is actually on a human scale. What's yeah. what's like the funniest or strangest reaction to the corpse flower that you've seen someone have? I think the the thing to me that um, the reaction that I find the most endearing is um, 
you know, when we bring a bunch of kids through and school <laughs> groups come through and, and they're, you know, at first they walk in and they see this thing and their faces are just full of this open astonishment because they just can't believe that there's a, a flower that or a bloom that's just that big. I mean, it's so, it may be two or three, four, five times the size of some of these kids. And they're just blown away by that. And then their faces begin to go through this metamorphosis <laughs> as they catch oh, a God, why? Oh, no. <laughs> they catch, you know, the scent, and it's just like, and some of them literally kind of start gagging. And, of course, they're kids, and so, you know, they not only don't hide that reaction, they sort of uh, amp it up a little bit, and, you know, so some of those reactions, I think, they, they kind of crack me up, actually. If you want honesty, get a kid's opinion on it. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's. I remember this one kid. I thought he might actually throw up. He was <laughs> he was gagging so bad. So, you know, I don't know if he was really hamming it up, you know, for his classmates or his teacher or me, because I was standing right there, kind of like, oh my god, what are you doing? But you know, those are, yeah, those are some of the best reactions because and. And because they're so open to it, then those are also great moments where, you know, we can talk about not just this incredible plant that's rare in Indonesia, but we can also talk about plants that are rare in our own backyard or similar species that grow, you know, literally a, throw, a stone's throw away. And so those, to me, that's the best part about it, right, is that because it captures people's attention, it gives us that moment where they're open to really learning about plants in a way that they aren't in the everyday, ordinary scheme of things. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a good place to, like, <laughs> to settle the corpse flower. You can't ignore it. That's the new tagline. <laughs> Cannot be ignored. <laughs> Cannot be ignored. <laughs> Thank you, Patty. Yeah, you're welcome. So there you have it. The corpse flower might be a freak of nature, but its quirks are precisely what keep us fascinated. It's okay to be weird. Thanks for listening. Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. You can find us at botanicalmysterytour.com or on iTunes, Google Play, and your favorite podcast apps. Next up, we'll be talking about the Sarlacc Pit in Star Wars and how it's a plant, which was news to us. And if you're in the Chicago area, come visit the garden. Wonderland Express, our annual holiday extravaganza, kicks off on Friday, November 23rd. You can find out more about everything happening at the garden and what's currently in bloom at chicagobotanic.org. So that's it. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jasmine. And I'm Erica. And thank you for coming with us on a botanical mystery tour. Botanical Mystery Tour is produced by the Chicago Botanic Garden. Any reference to specific pop culture media does not constitute or imply an endorsement by the Chicago Botanic Garden. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Chicago Botanic Garden.